You're listening to Friendlier, the podcast for friends who love to talk, read, and eat. I'm Sarah. And I'm Abby. Today we're going to talk about stuff and how it influences our lives. But first, let's catch up on life lately. Sarah, what's been happening with you? We are on the tail end of our winter break right now. So in two days, HP goes back to preschool and we'll get into our routine again. But it's been a great winter break. We had a really nice Christmas holiday, very low key. Then the kids and I went back to Missouri together while Neil stayed back, and we had a wonderful time, but I was also very glad to be coming home to my co-parent because I was very tired by the end of that week. And the most exciting thing that has happened is we got snow this week, which I believe you guys have snow right now. Yes. And HP has just been so excited about the snow and asking when we're going to get more, when are we going to get enough to cover everything, when can we go sledding, when can we make snowmen. Thursday was the big snow for us here. And by big, I mean maybe two inches. It was not a big snow. Mm -hmm. But for a four-year-old, that's plenty to have a lot of fun with. So he went outside four times that day. He's big into shoveling snow and has lots of little projects and making snow angels. And then the final time that he went out, our whole family did. And we went to the park with some neighbors and got to do sledding, which was just really fun. And One of those moments in parenting where I feel like this is why we're doing this and wanting to almost freeze the time because it was just so great. And then E fell and hit her face and started crying and we had to go home. (laughs) But it's been really fun to experience snow with kids who can enjoy it. I really love that HP loves snow so well. It's a good thing you guys left Texas or else he never would have gotten to know this part of himself. Yep. So yes, we also have snow, and that's really the main thing that's going on with us. So in North Carolina, I don't know how it is in Bloomington, but in North Carolina, when there's snow or when there's even talk of snow, people freak out. So our grocery store was out of eggs starting on Thursday afternoon. It's Saturday now, and the snow didn't even start until like 1 a.m. today. So the state's just really not prepared for it. Because we get maybe one big snow per year, they don't necessarily invest in things like salt and plows that would help cope with it. So I think that's one reason why people freak out about it. There are plows, but I think there are just not as many and it takes much longer. Like side streets often aren't plowed. And I haven't even seen plows out today yet because it was still snowing. So usually they wait till the snow stops to start plowing. And then the other thing is, I think the other reason people freak out about snow here is because often it will thaw during the day because it warms up enough to thaw Mm -hmm. and then it refreezes at night and becomes ice, which is even more dangerous. So I think that's why people freak out. But anyway, I was supposed to, we were going to record our podcast today and I usually go to the library to do that, but there was no chance that I was getting to the library. So my neighbors were really kind to let me record in their spare bedroom. So that's where I am right now. And other than that, we had good holidays. I did have a stomach bug. Thankfully, Plum didn't get it. And Andrew may have had like a little touch of it, but he didn't have it nearly as badly as I did. The bad thing was that then I took the stomach bug to my family. So half of them got it. Also, and it it was weird because I didn't think that you could be contagious with a stomach bug after you hadn't had symptoms. Right. And I hadn't had symptoms for like more than 48 hours when I saw the first wave of them and more than a week when I saw the second wave of them and they still got it. That is really interesting because I know the rule for preschool here is you have to be have not had vomiting or diarrhea for 24 hours. Yeah, so it was it was definitely well beyond that. Yeah. Hmm. Who knows? Maybe I didn't bring it to them for a while. They thought it was food poisoning, but then people got it staggered. Yeah. And it was about half the people that were there, which was the holiday potluck where I got it, about half the people got sick. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm pretty sure that's what it was. It was, and it was the same duration as mine. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't the exact bug I had, it was a very similar one that they picked up, I guess, coincidentally. And Andrew is fairly certain that we took it to them. So sorry, family. Yeah, sorry, family. It was really nice to be with them still, though. And we had a kind of a nice, quiet New Year's at home. And then it's been back to normal life this week. Let's move along now to talk about what we've been reading. Sarah, what have you been reading? I am a little over halfway through a book called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. I may or may not be saying that name correctly. And it is the second book of hers I've read. This is a book club pick. The premise of the book is it follows four young men who met in college, and it starts, um, the book starts when they're out of grad school and all four of them are living in New York City. Mm. And then the book is chronicling their relationships over the decades. So right now, I'm about two-thirds done, and they're in their early to mid-40s. Okay. And then throughout the book, there's also these flashbacks for one of the main characters, and we're learning more and more about his life before college and before he met his friends. So it's very much a character-driven book and not a plot-driven book. It's focused on their relationships and how they interact and how their histories influence the way they interact with each other now. Mm -hmm. It is a very hard book to read. Mm. There is a lot about sexual and physical abuse, both of children and of adults. Ooh, that sounds really hard. Some people in the book club decided not to read it at all, and some people stopped partway through. I don't think I've had such a visceral physical experience reading a book as I have to this one. The other night, I was about halfway through reading it, and I mean, I'm almost shaking talking about the book. It's very dark. I am glad I'm reading this book, but I am very confident I will not read it again because it is so hard to read. Mm -hmm. It's really challenged me to imagine what it would be like to have a completely different worldview based on these horrific experiences that happened to this person as a child and to think about how that influences everything of his going forward. Sounds like a really intense read. Intense is a good word for it. Would you recommend the book? I would. It's very well written. The characters are so well done. And I think that's part of what makes it so hard is you feel very invested in the characters. So when you're reading about these things happening to them, it's painful. But I would recommend it with the caveat that it deals a lot with abuse. And I would just want to make sure that anybody reading it knew that going into it. And I'm somebody who really likes books that highlight the darker side of human nature. And this for me is it's taking me right up to the edge of that Mm. and probably a little bit past what's comfortable. But I do like to be challenged in my reads. And uh, this is doing that. And we had talked about her earlier book, which was The People in the Trees and also dealt with issues of abuse. And I had recommended it to you when I first started it because it dealt with a lot of interesting questions around science and ethics Mm. and when is the pursuit of truth the most important thing and when does it need to take a backseat right and I partway through called you and said I unrecommend this to you I don't actually think you will like it and then you didn't read it no I'm remembering that now no I never read it because you you told me not to yeah And I mean, what you're describing is not something that I would ever choose to read, knowing what you have said about it is is a strong no for me now. Yes. 
but I'm I'm glad that you are glad that you're reading it. I am. And I'm looking forward to discussing it with my book club because I think there is a lot there to delve into. And I'm very interested to hear other people's experiences as I read this book because I think everyone will have a strong reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gripping. I want to keep reading. And I am not anticipating a happy ending, even though I'm not at the end based on my past reading experiences with her and how it's going so far. But yeah, I am, I am glad to be reading it. What are you reading? I'm reading The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which I don't know if you read that book. I think it's often on school reading lists. I did not read it in school, but I read it right after E was born, Hmm. really in the days and weeks afterwards. I read that on my e-reader at night while I was nursing her, which was a very strange experience. That sounds like it would be also another really intense reading experience because it is an intense book and it feels so relevant right now to the political climate in our country. So for people who don't know, it's a dystopian novel, and it's this future place where the Constitution has been thrown out in the United States, and they shot the president, and they shot Congress, and they, they, I mean, some military somebody took over the country, basically, and went about taking away rights from just about everybody and focused on women. And it was a military theocracy. It had a religious component. Right. So... It's present day, but then the main character is also telling flashbacks. So she's bringing you up to speed about how it all happened for her. And the main character is a handmaid, which is basically just there to procreate. So she lives in the house of one of the military commanders, and he has a wife, but his wife can't have babies, apparently, and she's fertile. And so then once a month when she's fertile, there's like a weird ceremony where they try and make a baby because the population is dropping. It's super intense and strange, but it's also gripping. I'm having a hard time putting it down. I was reading it right up until basically we started podcasting. It has felt really evocative to me because I think she tells one story about her 11-month-old daughter, someone trying to kidnap her in the grocery store, and Plum is 11 months old now. And Also, I'm not expecting a happy ending, but I'm really glad I'm reading it. And the reason that I'm reading it is because our friend Katie, who's a librarian, is doing a really awesome project this year. And she's a librarian, but she's also an artist. And one of her main mediums is paper cuts. So she creates these beautiful scenes and images and cuts in words to paper. And so this year she's doing 52 new covers for her favorite books that are paper cut covers. And if listeners want to check out her project, she has a Tumblr, which is by the cover project. And she is also on Instagram and Twitter at by underscore the underscore cover. And she also has a website, yadykatespapercuts.com. And I always look to her for book recommendations. And I was really, it was really fun when she told us about this project and we wanted to share it with you guys. So So The Handmaid's Tale is the cover that's coming out the week that this airs. Yeah. Yeah. Prodigal Summer was the first one, which we've already talked about how much we love that book. Mm -hmm. And the cover is gorgeous. It's like a Luna Moth, which is perfect if you've read Prodigal Summer. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Katie is just very talented and, as you said, has excellent taste in books. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to reading more of the ones that she's going to be doing this year and seeing the artwork as it unfolds. Yeah. 
she's fantastic. And you can buy her paper cuts and stuff from her website. I have an awesome Harry Potter or a Weasley family tree that's hanging in our bedroom that I bought from her Etsy store. So it's awesome. And we'll link to all of the things that we mentioned, her website and Instagram and Twitter. Mm -hmm. So you guys can check that out in the show notes. Now we're going to move on to the topic for today, which is stuff. We wanted to talk about this because Sarah and I both have really strong feelings about it, but also because this is a time of year when a lot of people are thinking about stuff and thinking about clutter. So let's start first by talking about the history of our relationship with stuff. Sarah, do you want to start? Sure. I think that I started this process about four years ago. I read Gretchen Rubin's book, The Happiness Project, Mm -hmm. and in her first month, she dealt with stuff. I can't remember what the overarching theme. It might have just been stuff for that month, but she went through every item in her house and decided if she wanted to keep it or not. And I remember reading that and thinking, I should do that. I have a lot of stuff that I don't need. And I started a little bit, but I didn't have a lot of momentum Mm -hmm. and kind of fizzled out. So was this right before HP that you were reading this? Mm -mm. It was after. So he was still a baby. It was in his first year. Okay. Because it was in the house that we owned in Austin. I remember reading it. And so he was on the scene for sure. That's the first time I remember really thinking, oh, yes, I should touch everything in my house and make an evaluation about whether this is useful to me or not. Hmm. But I did not actually do that. I thought about it a lot and I made small pieces of progress. Then we decided to move to a rental house in Austin. We wanted to be more central. And this was when I was pregnant with E, but we were going to be downsizing. We had three bedrooms in the home that we owned, and we were moving to a two-bedroom place. Mm-hmm. And there was also very little closet space, mm. and we were losing the converted garage that we had at the home that we owned where we could store a lot of stuff. So doing that just forced us to get rid of a lot of things, to just mm-hmm. fit into our new space and have it all be in a closet in any way that was usable. We had to downsize. And then... I think that it was part of my nesting was getting rid of more things. Mm -hmm. We had done the original or another going through everything and being pregnant. I just wanted even less. I knew it was going to add a lot of chaos to be bringing in another person into our home. And so I wanted Mm -hmm. to be controlling what I could to make it simpler and easier and more aesthetically pleasing, honestly. So I remember just taking trailer fulls of, and by trailer, I mean bicycle trailer, not rented giant trailer (laughs) but (laughs) doing multiple trips with the bicycle trailer to goodwill dropping things off and just things that i'd held on for to for multiple moves finally letting go of them i specifically remember a box of t-shirts that i had from high school and college that i was eventually going to make into a quilt Mm -hmm. to preserve those memories and finally just saying to myself i am never going to make this quilt and It was really freeing to do that and to just let it go and donate the t-shirts and move on and getting rid of that space, but also the mental space that freed up for me, not trying to convince myself that I was going to pursue this project that I really never was. Mm -hmm. And every time I would open the closet, I would think, oh, I should make that quilt. And you never would. Yeah. I mean, we have touched before in the podcast about like our aspirational selves versus who we are in reality. Yeah. And I mean, that sort of thing, I think looking at your stuff is a good exercise in reality, right? Yes. Regardless of what it brings up. 
Yeah. And it was also around this time that Neil and I started becoming interested in tiny houses Mm. and the concept of really minimizing, not just like paring down a little bit, but Mm -hmm. getting down to the essential. And we obviously do not live in a tiny house right now. And I don't really want to live in a tiny house with two young children. But I read some memoirs of people who lived in tiny houses and read a memoir of the minimalists called Everything That Remains. Mm. And I also read The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Mm -hmm. And all of those books, I feel like I'd done a few rounds of getting rid of things and they really inspired me to push further and to really question everything that we had and not just assume that it was something that did add value to our lives or that was necessary. I think you've had this experience too, but moving frequently helps you get rid of things. Absolutely, it does. And we have moved a lot because after that, when we were in that rental and we, I felt like that's when the majority of our minimizing happened was while we were there. And that was when the biggest shifts in my thinking about stuff happened was in that rental house. But after that, we put our stuff in storage for a month and lived in an Airbnb. And then we moved cross country. Mm hmm. It makes it easier to move when you have less stuff. And just the physical act of you have to touch everything you own twice when you're packing it and when you're unpacking it. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got interested in minimalism and how it happened for us. It definitely feels like an ever evolving process, but I am fairly happy with where we are right now and the balance that we found. How about you? When did this start for you? I first read the book, Clear Your Clutter with Feng Shui, when I was still in grad school. Yes. And I can't remember who even recommended it to me. It might have been my mom. But I read this book and I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And we owned a townhouse in Nashville. And, you know, I don't think had like a huge amount of stuff. But I mean, definitely, you know, had two bedrooms and had furniture for both of them. And even though there were only two of us living there and that kind of thing. And so then I read this book. And The feng shui aspects are not something that I even really remember, but it was this idea of like how clutter can um, influence you energetically. Mm -hmm. So like clutter makes you tired. Clutter, you know, makes it harder to do things. It makes it harder to do things like move and clean and like feel good about your house to have people over. And so I sort of started looking around and looking at all the stuff that we had that we had kept, like that were sentimental things and things that we'd gotten as gifts that weren't quite right. The book is by Karen Kingston. And in the book, she recommends a lot of the same things that many of these books about minimalism and clutter recommend, which is like have only things that you love or things that have specific utility. And so I did one big purge there. And I think that it was in regards to us selling our townhouse in Nashville because we took a bunch of stuff out to store it. And in doing that, I had to like touch everything. And then we had a huge garage sale. And then we moved to North Carolina and we have lived in three different houses since we've lived here in three years. So that's a lot of moving again. Mm -hmm. And so I think we did one round of purging before that multi-state move. And then we moved into a pretty big house for our second house here. And so the stuff sort of expanded to fill the space again and then got fed up with that place and also around the same time read The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which was sort of just like more, like I felt regalvanized to do all the things. And so we moved into a much smaller space, which is the space we're in now. So I think we went from 1,800 square feet to like 850 square feet. 
and you know, three bedrooms and two living areas and a garage to two bedrooms and a living area, basically. (laughs) And we have decent closet space, even though our place is much smaller. We're lucky in that sense, just based on when it was built. I think they valued closets. Um, So we still have decent storage, but there was just much less stuff. And so we got rid of a bunch of things, like including big things like furniture. I think the best part of living a less cluttered life for me is not feeling the need to hang on to the things that are sentimental. Like I would keep things like birthday cards and printed photos that I wasn't ever even looking at because I cared about the people who gave them to me. But reading those books and, you know, talking to you about it, I felt like I had permission to let that stuff go. And I don't think that, I think to call us minimalists would be an oversell. I don't think that we're minimalist. I do think that we highly value having things that we really love in our house. Yeah. Although I kind of want to push back on that because I don't think that being minimalist means you have to only have a hundred things or live in this really sparse space with nothing else. Hmm. And I, I don't like the idea of people not being able to call themselves minimalist because it doesn't look like this kind of stereotype of what minimalism is. Hmm. And I think that it's more a philosophy and a way of approaching stuff. So I would say that we're minimalist. And that Hmm. doesn't mean that somebody would walk into our house and say, oh, my gosh, these people are minimalists. They have no nothing here. Mm -hmm. But that we're really intentional about what we bring into our home and we're intentional about what we keep and that the things that we have are things that we love. So I guess I would call myself a minimalist. Yeah, no. And I I would call you a minimalist. I wouldn't call myself a minimalist. (laughs) But I think you're right. I think the point you're making is a good one, which is your level of stuff should not exclude you from being a minimalist right? or f- feeling called to that as a label if that resonates with you. Yeah. And you're saying that it does resonate. And I think by your definition, I could get behind it too, like for myself. I guess I want to see the label of minimalism to be opened up, that people shouldn't feel like they're excluded from that mm. because they aren't a single guy in their 30s that can live with 10 things and or that they don't live in a tiny house. And right. I think that we all get to define minimalism for ourselves. And I don't think that makes it watered down or less valuable. I think it just makes it more true for a lot of people and opens it up to include more. And I think that's positive. What is it that you like about the label and about claiming it for yourself, Sarah? So I wouldn't go around saying, hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a minimalist. (laughs) You know, it's not one of the core things that I use to define myself. And I think it's more personal for me, like because I do consider myself a minimalist, it affects how I'm going about doing things. So it's more internal. It's not a forward facing label to me. It's helping me maintain the clutter clearing that we've already done and helping me stay on course Mm -hmm. to think of myself that way. Hmm. Even coming back to the idea of identity-based habits, that saying I am a minimalist affects my actions and affects the way I'm viewing things. So I find it useful. Yeah. But it's not something that I use to define myself in terms of how other people see me. Right. Like you said, you're not introducing yourself as a minimalist. Right. So I don't feel drawn to it as a a label, but I do feel like I could easily make an identity-based habit statement about myself and about us as a family, which would be we are intentional about the stuff that we have in our house. But that's basically what you're saying is your definition of minimalism for you, right? Yeah. Okay. I've read a few of Joshua Becker's books, and he really talks about how everybody gets to define for themselves what minimalism looks like. Mm. And it will look different for people with young kids than it'll look like for, you know, Neil and I when we're 50. And it's going to look 
different than it did when we were 20. Hmm. So what's your motivation in your family behind reducing stuff? Why do you feel called to have less of it? I think part of it is that being home with young children, I really value uh, an environment that doesn't cause stress in my life. Mm -hmm. What you said about that book by Karen Kingston really resonates with me in how the stuff that we have does influence how we feel in our space. And there's already enough stresses in my life that I don't want to be have more stuff adding to that. Mm -hmm. Another big part of it is reducing what we think we need has also for me reduced what I want and that I have noticed a big change since starting to go through this process that I see how having more stuff takes more of my time, takes more of my energy, takes more of my money. And I want less of it now than I did a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's also very tied into the financial for me that I really would like Neil and I to have options in the future and not in the future when we're 65, but in the future 10, 15 years down the line. And if we can reduce the amount of space we need and the size of house we need and the stuff we want and the money that we spend, it helps us reach that goal. Mm -hmm. So I would say now that is a huge motivator for me is living a lifestyle that will make financial independence easier. For me, it's super like woo-woo feelings based. It's like, how do I feel in my home? How do I feel in our family? I think it's a value of our family. Like I said, we're people who try to be intentional about what we bring into our house. Mm-hmm. But it goes even sort of more primal than that. And that it's like, I feel better when I know that everything that I have has a purpose or I love it. And I feel better about being in my house and I feel better about my marriage and I feel better about having people over and those relationships, you know, and welcome welcoming people outside our family into a space that feels to me right in that way. And I I don't have great language for it because it really is more of like a gut feeling. Yeah, I can relate to that. Like when I imagine how I feel when I drop off a load of stuff at Goodwill, I feel happy just thinking about that. Mm -hmm. It feels amazing. Same to me. It's really freeing. I feel so light. Yes. Yeah. And then that reinforces it and makes me want to do more of it because it feels so good to do it. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely or identify with that too. Let's talk a little bit about challenges related to decluttering. What has been the biggest challenge for you? So talking about specific stuff that has been hard for me to let go of would be photos and sentimental items like journals. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't been hard for me to let go of because I have a strong emotional attachment to it. It's just been hard for me to go through that stuff Mm. because at this point, I don't have that much stuff. So it's like a small stack of journals, a little shoebox of photos, and then all my digital photos. But I don't feel like I'm getting a huge benefit from doing that because it's not something I see very often. Mm -hmm. But I I do want to go through that. And when I do think of it, especially the digital photos, that brings me a lot of stress to think about how unorganized they are. I mean, they're just massive too, like massive amounts of them. Yes. And so that's been the thing that's been hardest for me to really get under control Mm -hmm. and that I it's still on my to-do list and has been for years and I just have a lot of trouble making headway how about you 
I think that the biggest challenge is that, I mean, I still, even though I want to be really intentional about what I'm bringing in, I think I grew up shopping my feelings. So grew up like really taking a lot of joy in shopping. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of like bringing things in still sort of has a pull for me. Yeah. So there's sort of two competing feelings about it. Like it does feel really good to have less stuff Mm -hmm. stored and it feels really good to have a clear counter and it feels really good to have things be easier to clean and to feel really great about our space and to not have to worry, you know, to not have like something in the back of my mind of like, oh, I need to go through that stuff or whatever and and sort it out. It feels really good to have all those things done. But at the same time, I really still enjoy finding the exact right thing and shopping for it. So, I mean, using clothes as an example, it feels awesome to me to find an amazing pair of jeans. And I think if I could stop there, then it would be fine. But I think I'm like, oh, we like this cheese grater, so we should get all the cheese graters rather than just being like, you really can only use one at a time. This one works really well and has a lifetime guarantee. So you don't need any more cheese graters. And so that has been harder. It has gotten less challenging as our stuff has been at a level of like, I really like this. Mm -hmm. This really works for me. Because then if you bring in something that doesn't fit into that, it's much easier to sort of spot it and get it out right away. Sort of related to that, there are challenges when you're in a partnership like a marriage and when you have other people in your family, your kids express opinions, I'm sure. So what's that like? As you, as someone who's drawn to this, what has it been like with the other people in your family? Yeah, I think this ties in really well to the idea of challenge, because I was going to say one of the other challenges, not just with the things that are hardest for me to go through, but the challenge of the process has been negotiating that with Neil. He is somebody who likes to hold on to things just in case, and that Mm. if it's useful or potentially has a use, he would like to keep it where I look at it and think, we've had this for years and have never used it. Let's just get rid of it. And if we end up being wrong, we could always find another one. So we've had very different approaches to it. One way that we have solved it is Neil got a paper box and said, this is my box. You cannot go through it. You cannot think about anything in this box. You cannot let it stress you out, but that he would put all the things that he wanted to keep that I thought that we should let go of. And he put them all in that box. That's been really useful, I think, for him just to be able to say, don't worry about it. It's going in the box. (laughs) And that I just have to let that go. That's actually a really good boundary, right? Yeah. Hmm. And it has been really useful because I think it gives him a way to keep things that he wants. And it gives me a way not to worry about it. And then also just recognizing that we do need some stuff. And I think that I was really inspired by people who pared down to the barest level of their belongings. Mm -hmm. And we are just not really in a position to do that, or at least aren't in a position where we want to do that. For example, Neil has a lot of tools, but Neil does a lot of home projects and does a lot of crafting with the tools that he has. And they are very useful and bring a lot of value to our lives. Mm -hmm. And because it's not something that I use on a regular basis... It was easy for me to look at the quantity and just say, there has to be stuff we can get rid of here. And I'm sure there is some stuff that he could get rid of amongst his many tools. But it took a while for me to really just let that be what it is and to recognize the value that that's bringing to our family and to not worry about the fact that it takes up a lot of space. But those are things we need. Yeah. And then 
related to kids, I've also just had to accept a certain amount of clutter that just comes with having children. Mm -hmm. And I do try and minimize it, but just accepting that there's just going to be random stuff that my kids love, like the toys from the dentist that are, mm -hmm. are not something I would choose, but they talk about them and play with them a lot. And they, they would notice if it just disappeared. So letting it just be what it'll be and trying to to not obsess about it. Yeah. How about for you with Andrew and bringing Plum into the family? Andrew has been on board. I would say I've been the driver of most of the decluttering in our life, but he is definitely open to it. It's so funny that Neil has a box. Andrew also has a box. <laughs> it's like a Tupperware and it's just sitting on the floor of his closet. And I wish that it wasn't there and that we could put other things in there you know, like space heaters and things that we don't use all the time. I wish that we could use his closet to store them in there. But we had a similar sort of conversation about it where there was like a lot of sentimental things in there. And he was like, look, I'm just not ready to let go of this stuff yet. And I had to be like, okay, so if I force you to throw it out, you're telling me that this would be a problem in our marriage. He was like, yes. But that's really been the only big thing like that. He and I both have hobbies that require lots of stuff. So he is a home brewer yeah. and does that with varying degrees of activity. But I mean, always comes back to it and needs all of the things. And we're talking about like a kegerator and a chest freezer that is for lagering the beer and some kegs and things. So like large stuff. Plum doesn't have a closet in her room because all the homebrewing stuff is in her closet. <laughs> that's just how it is. And then I have. I really enjoy crafting and sewing. So I have two sewing machines, a searcher and a regular sewing machine that I use at least once a month, both of them. So it made sense to keep it. So I think there was a nice sort of balance there. I think if one of us didn't have a hobby with lots of stuff, it would be easy to look at the other one and be like, look, you have to get rid of it. But because we are balanced in that way, that that works out. Right. And I mean, he got just as excited about it as I did when we had our garage sale before we moved to the house we're in now because we made a lot of money and he really helped. And like that was really awesome and sort of like a nice boost for both of us. that There was a direct financial benefit to getting rid of stuff right then. So that's been good. Let's go ahead and talk about kids stuff. I enjoy looking for the exact right thing. Mm -hmm. So that was part of my process of nesting when I was pregnant was researching everything to death and finding out, you know, what exactly do I want that's just right and reading all the reviews and feeling like really well set up before Plum was born, that we had everything we needed. We didn't need anything else. And it was just going to be just right. And then she wouldn't sleep in the bassinet. She would either sleep on us or nowhere. So because I didn't want her sleeping on us all the time, I sort of was scrambling. And that led to like, some stuff purchases that I think if I had been a little more realistic about like, or even known, I mean, I don't even know that I knew that I just thought you just lay your baby down and they sleep, which is a little silly. Why did I think that? But that is what I thought. But I think I should have thought more about some transition sort of items. And we ended up with several of those, I think some of which we could have eliminated if we weren't desperate to sleep in the early days of her life. Yeah. And so I feel like the stuff has definitely expanded. But I, I'm okay with it. I mean, I think like you said, there's some of it you just roll with mm -hmm. and realize that this is a season where there's more stuff in our lives than maybe I would prefer. But, you know, soon she'll be able to make her own decisions and um, we'll be in a different place with it sooner rather than later, really. Yeah. I really try and keep that in mind that a lot of the things we have, we are not going to have forever. It's just for this certain period of their childhood. 
I also tried from the get-go to assume we need nothing and then go from there. Mm -hmm. I tried to limit it that way, but of course, we still have a lot of stuff related to our kids. And keeping in mind that it's not there forever has been very helpful to me. And then also just getting rid of it as we go. You know, Mm because you were the recipient of a lot of the stuff that E had outgrown while Plum was on the way. Mm -hmm. And I just, as soon as she would outgrow things, because E is our last child, I just boxed it all up and shipped it away. Yeah, we loved that. And we're still doing that now, just when E's done with something, moving it on, Mm -hmm. because we we don't need to hold on to it. Where with HP, there was a lot of stuff that he had outgrown, but we still wanted to keep it because we were planning on having another child and... We had some great stuff Mm -hmm. that we didn't want to have to get again. Yeah. We have kept a lot of things too, you know, for a potential second child. But a lot of things that were smaller, like clothes, I passed a lot of that on already and just assumed someone else will have hand-me-downs for us when the time comes. And I just need to trust that. And that has felt really good. Mm -hmm. But it's the bigger things that felt like more of an investment that are still hanging around. So whenever I'm letting go of something, I something that's been really helpful to me is thinking about somebody else getting used from it. And I think part of that came from the life-changing magic of tidying up, mm-hmm. thinking it for its service to you and that it's going to move on to somebody who needs it. I love that concept. And she talks, I think the most like striking sort of way she uses that idea is talking about gifts, mm-hmm. that the purpose of a gift is to be joyfully received in the moment it's given. And then once it's fulfilled that purpose, then you can do anything with it. You don't have to keep it just because someone gave it to you. And that has been really freeing for me. Okay, Sarah, is there anything in all of your years of clearing clutter that you regret having gotten rid of? At this point, I really don't think so. There was a moment last week when Neil needed to fix something on the roof and he thinks that he may have gotten rid of whatever it was that he needed and that he was regretting that, Oh, which I think will make him less likely to want to go through any of his tools in the future. Yeah, that's challenging. Which is also okay, because uh, especially if they provide a use to us, then I think it is good that he hangs on to them. But I can't think of anything personal that I've gotten rid of that I've wished that I had kept. Uh, How about you? I had a scare last year. Or maybe, no, probably not last year because I was super pregnant last year, two years ago, where I thought that I had given away these red pants, like this pair of red jeans that I really love because they had been a little big. And I was like, man, I wonder where those are. And then I thought I donated them, Mm -hmm. but I didn't. They had just like fallen behind our dresser. Like I had them on top to be put away and then the cat put them down or something. And so when I found them, I was so relieved. So that would have been my one if I had given them away because I still wear them even now. But no, I don't have anything. If it's something that I get rid of and then I really miss it or realize, you know what? I'm in this place in my life now where I'm going to use that way more. So I shouldn't have given it away. Probably I can just get it again. You know, I can't think of anything that would be irreplaceable that, you know, a new version or a new used version wouldn't be pretty easy to get and work just as well. Yeah, I feel like that ties into a philosophy of abundance and just feeling like I don't have to hold on so tightly to these things because I can get them again. And that, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's obviously a very privileged place to be in to feel like that. Oh, totally. But I feel the same that it's I can let this go because things will come back to you when you need them or you can get them when you need them. Or you think you need it and you really still don't. Right. That's the other thing. Like even if I hadn't found those red pants again, even if I really had given them away. 
my life would not have ended. I would have still been fine. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk now about what we've been eating. So I'm going to go first. We have been making the kitchen's stovetop macaroni and cheese, which is super simple. So I had been looking for a stovetop macaroni and cheese recipe, and most of the ones that I had tried involved making a roux first. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, they often came out grainy. It was like I couldn't get it. Mm. I couldn't get the cheese all the way dissolved. I don't know if I didn't cook it quite long enough, but I felt like sometimes if I cooked it too long, then I would burn it because you can burn a roux really easily. And then it's like, well. Yeah. Or it thickens for a while and then you add more and then it breaks apart. That's happened to me a lot. Yeah. So I hadn't found one. And so I think very recently, like within the last month or so, I was Googling and just, you know, came upon this recipe from the kitchen. And it does not involve making a roux. There is still flour, but you just put it in the milk, in some of the milk separately, and then stir it until the milk thickens. Okay. And then you just add handfuls of cheese and salt and mustard powder, only five ingredients for the cheese sauce, and then you cook the pasta and then you just pour it on. So it's very easy and quick, which is awesome, but it's also really incredible. And you can put basically any cheese in there that you want. So the one that I made last night um, put a combination of Gruyere and regular cheddar and sharp cheddar which was really good yeah and i also this time used wagon wheel pasta which our instagram followers will have seen because it holds all the cheese (laughs) but it's really incredible one of the best macaroni and cheeses i've ever had i'm excited to do other things with it like put other things in there like we had um we visited a brewery in Asheville, and they had a truffle mac and cheese where it had truffles Mm. in there And so I'm really excited to get like the dried truffles and rehydrate them and put them in this macaroni and cheese with, I mean, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. I will definitely need to try this recipe because growing up, we did a stovetop mac and cheese with the roux Mm -hmm. and I still as an adult make that when I make mac and cheese for the kids, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty hit or miss on how it turns out that mine often separates. And then I just think, eh, well, throw the cheese in. It's kind of weird, but yeah. My kids will eat it anyway. But you really can't go wrong with cheese. So <laughs> Right. Cheese, milk, butter. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm very interested in trying a different technique. Yeah. Especially one that is much simpler. Well, I'm evangelizing. I think everyone should try it if you eat <laughs> cheese. Sarah, what have you been eating lately? When we were in Missouri, we have all the Christmas treats. My mom makes so many different things. Fudge, chocolate dipped Oreos, toffee. Mm pistachio brittle, peanut brittle, almond. I mean, the list goes on. Just stop because I'm kind of hungry. (laughs) (laughs) And also I am sad that holiday treats are over. Yeah. But go ahead. I know you're going to tell me about one more treat. I'll tell you about one more, but this one's a little different. So growing up, we had this cookie called Lignitzer Bomben that my grandmother used to make. And my grandmother grew up in Germany. So this is a food that she had as a kid. And we had it when we were younger. I never picked it because all these treats would go on a little tray. And then after dinner, we'd pass around the tray and everybody could get a few of the treats. Well, as a kid, I'm not going to pick this weird German cookie as opposed to a fudge or a chocolate covered Oreo. So I rarely had these. And then my grandmother passed away. So it's been a long time since anybody in the family has made them. But this year, my sister decided to revive the Lignitzer Bomben. And I loved them. I am so sad I did not eat more of these as a child. It has, you know, honey, cocoa, currants, spices like cardamom, cinnamon, cloves in it. Mm. So you make this little cookie and you bake it in mini muffin tins. Mm. And then you dip that in 
baking chocolate and sugar that's melted. So it has a chocolate coating around this spiced chocolate cookie on the inside, Mm. but it's not overly sweet. My palate has changed a lot as an adult. Mm -hmm. And so now things that I loved as a kid are just like a chocolate dipped Oreo are not really going to do it for you. Yeah. They're just so sweet. Or even some of the the pistachio brittle is delicious, but it's so sweet. I can only have a small piece before just feeling overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. But these cookies, I can definitely eat more than a small piece. Plenty. (laughs) Plenty of those. Anyway, they were really good. And um, I'm so glad my sister made them. She sent me the recipe and it was kind of fun to see it because it was obviously typed up by my grandmother on her typewriter and it had some of her handwritten notes on it. Yeah, I'm excited that potentially I'll try and make them next year come Christmas time and hopefully my sister will make them and I can visit her and eat hers as well. It sounds like you have some catching up to do with cookie eating since you didn't eat them as a kid. (laughs) Exactly. That's all for this episode of Friendlier. It's been great talking with you, Abby, and with all of you listeners. If you'd like to join in the conversation or offer suggestions for future topics, you can find us online at friendlierpodcast.com, on Instagram at friendlierpodcast, or you can email us friendlierpodcast at gmail.com. Also, remember to check out our friend Katie's paper cuts at yadykatespapercuts.com. Until next time, may your books be engaging, your food delicious, and your conversations friendly. It's weird. I don't know. We don't know anything about sound recording. <laughs> True. Is the issue. Uh, yeah. Well, so I met with people from my church and I was like, oh, yeah, they're asking about hobby stuff. I was like, oh, I just started a podcast with a friend. They're like, oh, maybe you could run a podcast for the church doing stuff. I was like, I don't do any of the technical part. <laughs> I was oh, like, my I gosh. Have, I have no skills. So you okay. could totally figure it out, though. Oh, I'm sure I could. And then I would have you to help me whenever I. Mm-hmm. I needed it to help so. you by with my very limited knowledge to help you Google. Right. Because <laughs> that's what I just do. Yep.